Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, the founder of Connected Editorial and the host and creator of this podcast. For those of you just joining in, Slow Stories is a series that deep dives into the rising slow content movement. In each of these episodes, I interview brand builders, entrepreneurs, and creative professionals who share what slow content means in the context of what they're building and why slowing down and creating thoughtful stories is more important than ever. Today's episode begins with an opening story from Jenny Veit, who shares a passage from a memoir and manifesto that made her slow down. Here's more from Jenny. Hello, my name is Jenny Veit. I'm an assistant editor for the Swanee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly. We like to say we're new since 1892. Something that made me slow down recently is Deborah Levy's memoir and feminist manifesto, The Cost of Living, a book that interrogates motherhood, divorce, and language. But this book deals more than anything with grief and how we struggle to find the words to express it. The following passage is from Chapter 9, Night Wandering. A few months after my mother's death, I was reading from Things I Don't Want to Know at a festival in Berlin. The translator sat at my side. We had agreed that I would read three lines in English, and she would translate those three lines into German for the audience. I started to read, and then I came to a section in which I am seven years old, lying in my mother's arms. It was a shock I had not anticipated, a ghostly encounter. Our heads touched. It was love, and it was pain. My voice broke, and I paused mid-sentence. The translator waited for me to finish the agreed three sentences. She was left stranded, a broken sentence hanging between us. If the words were trains, they had slowed right down and come to a halt. When they eventually pulled into the station, the translator's tone was clipped and matter-of-fact, which might have been a good thing. This struggle to get the words out of my mouth took me right back to a year in my childhood when I did not speak at all. Every time I was asked to speak up, to speak louder, the words ran away, trembling and ashamed. It is always the struggle to find language that tells me it is alive, vital, of great importance. We are told from an early age that it is a good thing to be able to express ourselves. But there is as much invested in putting a stop to language as there is in finding it. Truth is not always the most exciting guest at the dinner table. And anyway, as Marguerite Duras suggests, we are always more unreal to ourselves than other people. Thank you so much again to Jenny for sharing. Again, the book she read from was The Cost of Living by Deborah Levy. Now here's my conversation with Sanaye Lamoy. The best stories are created when you surrender to uncertainty. This is a quote from Sanaye Lamoy's debut novel, The Margot Affair. While the context is a work of fiction, these words embody the fact of what it means to live, work, and create in this day and age. 
and if recent months have shown us anything, it is that uncertainty is in abundance. Though if you ask Sanae, uncertainty is also something that's just part of the process in prose and in life. Born in Paris, raised between France and Australia, and currently based in New York City, Sanae's global upbringing has given her plenty of stories to tell. Coupling this with her past professional experiences as a cookbook editor and writing consultant, her editorial prowess provided an ample runway for her to write The Margot Affair. The story follows Margot Louve, a Parisian teenager who exposes a family secret, shattering her world and simultaneously throwing her into another, more adult one in the process. The story is teeming with the complexities of family dynamics, relationships, and identity. And much like the evolution we see within the Margot Affair, the world beyond the pages of this story also changed drastically within the seven-year period it took for Sanaye to complete the book. In this conversation, she expounds on what she's learned both personally and professionally during this transformational time, how she's kept a steady pace even in a world of digital distractions, and why she believes in daydreaming even when the days themselves are uncertain. There's so much wisdom in this conversation, so without giving too much more away, here's my conversation with Sanaye Lemoyne. an interesting question because I realized in trying to answer it that I have a hard time seeing myself outside of my profession as a writer. It sort of seeps into everything that I do, even though for a long time I was too embarrassed to even call myself a writer and I would always define myself through the other jobs that I had, either as a teacher, a recipe writer, or editor. Um, but I do feel like it's important to give you a little bit of backstory um, about myself and where I'm from. So I'm half Japanese and half French, and I was raised in France and Australia and have lived in the U.S. since 2007. And over the past couple of years, I've worked in food as a recipe editor and a cookbook writer, and I've also worked as a teacher and a writing consultant. And... I suppose those are all parts of my identity still um, outside of my writing life. I've always thought or imagined that to really be able to go there as a writer, it's probably helpful to have other experiences in addition to just writing. So I feel like all of those things have probably informed how you approach storytelling. Yes, um, that's true. And I think also for so long writing, as I was saying, I was embarrassed to call myself a writer and, and writing never um, felt like really a concrete occupation. And I was very protective of it and afraid that if it didn't work out, you know, I didn't want um, even my parents to get their hopes up or, um, or myself. Um, it was easier to have it be something that I could keep to myself and and then I could have these other identities in public um, those were sort of the, the the less fragile parts of me in a sense yeah I relate to that so much before I kind of started in the digital space my dream was to be a writer and it's taken shape in so many other ways and I'm really grateful for that because it's also opened up the realms and how I can add value to that space Whereas I think before, at least with the advent of the internet, it might not have seemed as successful as it's become in maybe the last five to 10 years. And I think too, some of these things don't necessarily have to align with your professional identity. I think storytelling is so universal in the sense that we all experience stories 
And with that in mind, I always like to ask my guests if there is a particular story that has resonated with them or made them slow down and had an influence on their process. Yes, yeah, so um, I have I have sort of two answers for this. Um, one is kind of a more timeless answer, and one is a, a very specific reading experience that I had this summer. Um, but the the first has to do with my mom always telling me stories when I was growing up. And even today, I realized that she is constantly telling me stories. It mostly happens over the phone. Um, and I even think that we have a better relationship on the phone. I hope she's not listening to, <laughs> to this. Um, but there's something about just her disembodied voice, and she can go on for hours. Um, and I'll just sit there, I'll be doing something else, and I'll listen to her. Um, and there's something that's always very soothing and centering. And I might be going through a difficult moment or I might feel agitated um, or uninspired, but just hearing her tell a story, something that she's heard or experienced. It's often something that she listened to on the radio or something that she remembers from 20 years ago that has a very coming effect on me. And sometimes it'll even inspire me to begin writing and I'll put the phone down and then I'll, I'll start um, writing what she said. Um, but this summer, I, I read a novel that kind of threw me back into the writing space and reading. I, I don't know how it's been for you, but I've been reading so slowly. I usually read quite quickly, but since the month of June, it's just, I'm kind of a, I'm a snail. And, um, <laughs> but I'm enjoying that as well. And I read um, a debut novel that came out at the end of July called It Is Wood, It Is Stone by Gabriela Burnham. It takes place in Brazil. And there's something really magical about it in the way that it's structured. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't have a clear plot where, you know, you know what's going to happen next or, um, or even you have a sense of where the story is going and a lot of the other books I had read this summer were more predictable or more structured in terms of plot. Whereas this novel, I just felt like I was there for the ride, swimming in each sentence, um, not knowing even where a paragraph would end. And there was a, a very wonderful thing that happened in, in just reminding myself that I can be surprised in reading and then in writing as well. Um, and that's definitely a book that um, that made me feel less anxious about how slowly I was reading. Um, you know, it 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 was, if anything, it was very pleasurable to be savoring each word. I think that's so wonderful, kind of that recognition of pace in relation to how you read and how you absorb the story. And I think just going to the anecdote you were saying about listening to stories on the phone from your mother, it's interesting how our devices can kind of, they can certainly distract us from things, but they can also be used as tools to focus on the story rather than being distracted by the person who's telling it or the environment that surrounds them. Because I think too, you know, at least with your parents and family, it's so easy to let some of those external details add bias around the story that they're telling or add layers that might take away from what they're actually saying. I think these are some of the things that you touched on so beautifully in your novel, The Margot Affair. 
And I want to speak more about that, but before we do, it would be great if you could give our listeners a little bit of a refresher on your writing background and how your experiences informed the story of the Margot affair. Yes, I that's that's so true what you're saying that 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 it can be distracting especially with family members or I mean, I can so easily annoyed by my mother, but if I just have her on the phone, it's really fine. <laughs> All of the rest falls away. So, um yeah. I'll think about that more. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, yes. So in terms of my writing background and, and how I, I began writing The Margot Affair, um, I, I've always loved to write. I think as many writers say, you know, it's, it's something that I would do um, sort of as a hobby on the side for a long time. I went, I went to a French high school and um, I didn't, I wasn't able to write very much creatively because I was studying sciences and it's a it's a pretty rigorous um, strict program where you're really just focused on on one topic and so when I got to college in the U.S. being able to take creative writing classes was such a revelation Um, and I I stumbled into a creative writing class a fiction workshop I remember my second semester of my freshman year and I just fell in love with the class and I ended up taking seven classes with the same teacher, one a semester. I was very one-track minded. I'd found a class I liked and I was just going to stay with it for as long as I could. Um, but what what really was formative in this class and I think what um, got me to writing professionally was that the teacher for the first time was giving me permission to just write and was giving me a reader. Um, and the best piece of feedback that I got at the time, which I still think about today, was to make sure that I was taking enough time to daydream. This is, and this felt radical at the time because none of my other teachers were saying that it was, you know, you should study and do your homework and and prepare for exams. But to have someone telling you to do the opposite and to just daydream was very interesting. Um, and it it was more difficult to do, you know, after I, I finished um, undergrad and then grad school because my life in New York was so busy. I was working as as a teacher and then as a cookbook editor, and there wasn't a lot of time to write, um, and there wasn't a lot of time to just allow observations to percolate and to turn into a scene. Um, so I when I started writing The Margot Affair, it was in grad school. And then I was working um, other jobs and I would write kind of in pockets of time when I could find them in the morning or on the weekend. Um, and, and then the novel over many, many years started to take shape into the version that you know it to be today. Yeah, it's so amazing. And what a happy accident to stumble into that class and realize that this is your story. Um, I think, too, it seems like the book, you know, it took seven years to write. And I'm sure within that period, there were moments of elation and then others that might have felt more uncertain. And I'm not sure if pace had an effect on your mood in terms of how you were feeling about certain aspects of the book. But I'm curious how you view your relationship with pace in the context of writing a novel like this in our digital age. Yeah, that's that's a great question because um, I think especially living in a place like New York where the the expectations are high and um, 
there are so many distractions and there's a lot of pressure to to work all the time. I feel like even, you know, whenever I took a bit of vacation, um, it felt, I was embarrassed to, to talk about it. Um, I, I would often try to take as much time as I could between jobs, so ideally three weeks, so that I could write during that period of time. Um, but I, I've been thinking a lot about um, my relationship to um, my phone and my computer, and especially how how that interrupts my writing or maybe takes away from it. And I have this bad habit of checking my phone first thing in the morning. I don't know um, what what your morning is like, but I think part of it is that I have family who lives abroad. My dad's in Thailand. So I do sometimes get messages throughout the night and I feel like, you know, I need to at least look at my phone. Um, but then that leads to reading emails and the news. And then suddenly it's, you know, half an hour later, an hour later, and I'm just like deep in an article. Um, so one strategy that I've that I've been using for the past couple of years that I was always doing, but I've been a lot more conscious about is to write on paper. Mm-hmm. And that's a way to really set the computer aside or my phone or anything else that might be a distraction. Um, on the one hand, it allows that separation. And then on the other hand, it also allows me to slow down, which um, is I, I've noticed that although I'm writing slower by hand, the ideas and the scenes and and even dialogue flow more easily than they would if I'm typing. And so there's something that's almost unlocked when I begin writing on paper. Um, I also feel like I'm, I don't know where I'm going and I'm kind of, there's a thread or something that's pulling me along and, you know, I'll start a sentence and I don't know how I'll end it. And that's something that is a lot harder to do when I'm typing. And then at some point, I'll inevitably move over to, to the computer and I'll, and I'll start typing. But when I'm, even when I'm in a Word doc, I know some writers will turn, on the, turn off their Wi-Fi, but there's something about that that just, it feels, I don't know, a little too like I'm creating this, <laughs> this constraint. For me, it's like, well, once I'm on my computer, I'm on my computer and that's okay. You know, it's okay if I check my email at some point or, you know, the space already feels a little polluted. But as long as I know that I have a piece of paper and a pen and I can start there or go back to that space, then I feel like, you know, I have the separation that I need. I can remove some of that clutter. Do you remember what medium you started the Margot Affair with? Was it online or off? I think it was probably a combination of I usually always begin writing by hand um, and then Either I'll write a couple of pages or maybe just a paragraph and then I'll start typing. Um, but it's a lot of back and forth of beginning on paper, then moving to the screen, then going back to paper, then printing and, and editing on paper, retyping. It's kind of a mix. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what what the very first page was. <laughs> if it was. Oh gosh, that's so long ago. It's a blur. <laughs> I think it's interesting to kind of imagine the shift in pace and then the shift in the spaces in which a story unfolds. And as I sort of open up the lens of who I'm speaking to on slow stories, you know, in our most current phase, my exploration is really focused on obviously slowing down in our digital age, but also through the lens of this idea of slow content or storytelling. And as a writer, I'm curious what this idea means to you 
you know, especially since you worked in the editing space and now um, as a novelist too. Yeah, I think slow storytelling for me really has to do with the process and the time that it takes, especially when you are also working other jobs. At least for me, um, in writing my first novel, there was really no way around that slowness. I wasn't going to write the novel quickly. I mean, maybe if I was the kind of writer who who doesn't need to sleep and who can stay up all night and you know write in kind of like a, a mad fury, but that's not the way I operate. So as the years went by, um, I had to grow comfortable with with the fact that it would be slow and that would be okay. Um, And that there was also a lot of value in pausing between each draft and taking some distance um, as though I needed that period of mourning of of being able to shed the previous version um, in order to move forward with the next one. And I remember when I first started writing this book in 2012, I met a novelist who was about 10 years older than me, who um, told me that it takes on average 10 years to write your first novel. I don't know where he read this, or maybe that was his own experience, but that number stuck with me. And I think at the time, so I was I was 22, and I thought, well, you know, but maybe it'll take me less time, you know? <laughs> like, maybe if I'm ambitious and I work really hard, I'll do it quicker. Um, but now it's 2020, so it actually, you know, from beginning to end, including the, the editorial and publication process, it took eight and a half years. So, you know, we're, we're pretty, pretty close to the 10-year mark. I imagine it's so different for every book, but for my novel, for, for this story to really become the version that it is today, I think I, I needed to grow as a writer. I needed those 10 years and, and to grow as a person. Um, and I... I'm just not sure this book would be what it is without those years going by. Not not just the hard work, but of me growing up. I don't know how else to to put it. Um, and I think about this with my second book, and you know, to what extent it'll it'll be true for that book, or whether it'll be different. Um, and I don't want it to become an excuse for not writing and not doing the work, but I also want to temper that desire that we can have to get something done quickly because we think that that's a, a marker of us working really hard and being successful, even though for myself, it seems like a good story can, it can take a lot of time. Yeah. I think I'm starting to realize that the twenties are sort of like the puberty of adulthood. I mean, I'm still in my 20s, but as I inch closer to the next decade, you know, I'm constantly unlearning a lot of what we've been told is the recipe for success. And that might just be a result of growing up here in New York, both personally and professionally, and kind of creating in the age of the digital revolution where we're seeing everybody curate their best lives and sort of perform in a way. So what you're saying, I think, is a very important lesson that we're all learning as we're forced to slow down and reassess what's truly important. I think a lot of that, too, is underlined by this looming sense of uncertainty about the world. And that's such a beautiful thread within the Margot Affairs plot. Margot is kind of navigating the uncertain landscape of being an adult or being on the cusp of adulthood while still being someone who's growing into her own skin. And I, I won't give too much more away about the plot. But 
there was a line in the book that was really resonant with me. And it reads, the best stories are created when you surrender to uncertainty. So I want to talk a little bit more about this line, who said it, why it made sense for this character to say it, and also have you share some moments of uncertainty that you had to surrender to while writing this story. I'm so glad you pointed out that line because no one else has yet. Um, so it's it's always fun to be able to talk about a new section of the book, what feels like a new section. Um, so I'm. this is a line that Margot says, but she's quoting her mother um, in terms of, of making a film or telling a story. Um, and it's something that I would actually often tell my students when I taught undergraduate essay writing to um, write into uncertainty or to begin writing without a plan and to use writing as a tool of discovery, especially in very early drafts. And we would call these exploratory drafts, where we're really just exploring ideas, where we're going. Um, the, the idea is that in the act of writing, you might discover where you're going and what it is that you're trying to write as opposed to following an outline that you've drafted beforehand. And um, this, is, this feels especially true to the way that I write fiction. I know some writers like to outline or have a much clearer sense of direction before they start writing the the book. But um, for me, I, I really didn't know what the story would be and what the plot and the narrative arc would be when I started writing. Um, and when I write, I'm often thinking about an observation or a feeling. It could be a very small detail, and that's what sets me off. And that can be kind of nerve-wracking because you don't know where you're going and you just have to trust that you'll get somewhere interesting as you write. Um, it's a more extreme version of going for a walk in a neighborhood that you don't know and being comfortable with getting lost, but also knowing that you'll get to where you need to be at some point. Um, but what I really love about this uncertainty is that when you surrender to it, it's what makes novel writing exciting. Um, even as you're writing and rewriting and rewriting, because you always have that element of discovery, the sense that you're going into uncharted territory, that you don't know where this book is taking you. And the I think what, what was maybe more challenging in writing this novel that way is that as time went on and as the novel progressed, um, I felt like I needed a more linear plot or structure. I I just, I started to maybe become a little impatient with that and I maybe I wanted to be done or I just sensed like okay I was close but I didn't quite know where it was going and that especially happened with the ending of the book where I kept outlining what could happen different versions I was sort of map mapping out um, possible endings but it wasn't working out and you know I'd say oh this could happen or this could happen and here like let me write out a little sketch of what that could look like but I felt like I wasn't hitting the right emotional note. And so at one point I set that aside and I gave myself a prompt, um, which was I knew that the novel wanted to end with Margot and her mother in some way. And so that was my prompt, a scene with the two of them. And I started writing on paper, <laughs> of course, and I just saw where, where that took me. And that's how I, I got to the final scene. And also with the thanks of my editor and <laughs> who provided guidance. But it just, I really needed to sort of let go of all the, all the mapping and the outlining. 
it's a lot like living, you know, you just kind of have to trust at a certain point that things are gonna, or the direction that you're supposed to go in will unfold. Obviously, that's so much easier said than done. But it's something I'm reminding myself to reconsider during this time, especially. But I love the ending, because obviously, it's the end of the book, but you kind of left on a note where it's the beginning of the next chapter of their story as mother and daughter. Oh, I, I, I really love that way you've described it. I'm glad you felt that way. Yeah, I mean, mother-daughter relationships are something that, you know, it's, it's very hard to put words to. Um, but I think the complexities of it are something that you touched on so beautifully. And I think another really interesting element, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the story was set in present day and through the lens of a teenager and I don't know if this was a conscious decision, but Margot kind of came up in an age of digital and social media, but there really wasn't much mention of that aspect of teenagehood. Was that something that was relevant to you? Yes, that was a conscious decision in the sense that I, I wanted it to be set in a near present time. So I, I didn't want it to feel like it was set in the 70s or, you know, for instance, but I wanted it to also feel a little bit um, timeless and vague in terms of when exactly it's taking place. And one way to situate it in the present was to make it obvious that they, that they have computers and email, but to remove social media. Um, I, I also, I think part of it is that I wanted the story to be so centered on her emotions and her relationship with her parents and this upheaval that they were going through. And because it's a story of secrets and then a public reveal, I worried that if I included social media, then it would right away change the tone and the focus would have to be more on news and portrayal of, of Margot. And, you know, it, I, I didn't want it to be about the gossip or those sorts of repercussions of of the discovery um, of her father's identity. Mm -hmm. And so I hope that it would feel a a little bit timeless, a little hard to place while still feeling as though it's in the present tense. It definitely came across, but I think it was an interesting sort of approach to take and important too, because I, I think it also brings some of the humanity back that's been lost to social media and the way that people are living and kind of navigating such life-changing situations. So yeah, it's it's interesting for sure. And I think just kind of on the broader subject of the world, talking about this element of timelessness, the Margot Affair took you over seven years to write, and the world in which you started this book has changed drastically. And I'm curious if your writing changed too, in the sense of what's important to you and what's become important to you. And as we endure a public health crisis, political discourse, and general uncertainty, if you expect things to change in terms of how you approach writing in the next seven to 10 years? Yes, that's that's such a good question. And I've been thinking about it a lot um, because the the second book that I'm working on is is so different from my first. I mean, there are some similarities I'm noticing now in terms of my obsession with with family secrets or families that are falling apart and um, the the friendships between women and you know kind of those those like bigger themes but it's been really interesting to see even in the past couple of months how 
the social and cultural and political conversations that we're having are, are seeping into my writing and what I'm drawn to. Um, and because I'm half Japanese, I often do think or have thought about how my mixed heritage has shaped my identity. And it's something that really didn't come out in, in this book, which is entirely set in France with a French cast. Um, but it is a part of me that I'm exploring in the book that I'm writing right now, along with the question of what constitutes one's physical and emotional home and a sense of belonging, which I think are are, are questions that we've, we've thought about more, especially with confinement and with um, the, the fact that we're separated from our families or just not, not able to have the mobility that, that we are used to. And the other thing that I've been thinking about a lot is one's responsibilities towards an adopted country in a moment of crisis. So, and, and it's been hard and eye-opening to to reckon with these messy feelings and I, I haven't figured out what what they are and you know I, I really don't have any answers right now but um, my feelings towards America and, and France and, and not being able to go to France right now but also not being American and I've applied for citizenship but that's um, in limbo right now and and so this this like question of how you relate to a political upheaval in your chosen country um, really interests me, and and how you feel towards you know maybe your home country or whether that is your home country um, in a time like this um, is is also front of mind. Lately, I've been getting these questions a lot of, will I move back to France with the pandemic? haven't I been here long enough and like tried hard enough and maybe it's a sign that America doesn't want me or, you know, it's my instinct is always, but like this is home and it isn't. Um, So anyway, these are, these are all things. It's kind of a long way, a long circular way to say that I'm still working through them and they're, and they're making their way into my um, second book and We'll, we'll see how, how it develops over the next couple of years, um, you know, whether it's three years or seven years. And I imagine that as I grow on a personal level as well, the, the themes that I'm drawn to and the questions will change as they did with the Margot affair. Yeah, those are all very big things to sort of have percolating as you sit down to write and generally just build a life. And, you know, as people kind of engage with you about your approach to storytelling, as you navigate this new chapter, and um, and just as you kind of come up against some of these things, is there a particular question that you hope people start asking you more often, whether it's about the story you're writing or the life that you're living? The, the question that I'm, I may be surprised that I haven't gotten more, and, and, and I'm sure that this will fade and seem less important um, as the weeks go by, but maybe it's it's what I've been thinking a lot this summer is what surprised me in publishing my first novel and what were some of the unexpected highs and lows of the process. But but separate from the pandemic, because I have gotten a lot of questions, you know, how, how has it been um, given the circumstances? Um, but I, I do think there are certain feelings or um, experiences that are maybe more universal to just the experience of, of being of publishing one's first novel and 
maybe that's a question that writers get a lot more often in a non-pandemic world or, or a time of, of not such intense crisis. Um, so I'm, I'm curious if, if that question will come up. Well, it will come up now. What was surprising to you? What's been really surprising is having a combination of highs and lows at the same time. And I, I had expected certain things to feel really difficult or, um, or to feel like disappointments or, you know, the, like the anxiety of maybe getting a bad review or how it would feel to read a negative comment on Goodreads or Amazon. But what I hadn't expected was that often that would happen within the same day or within the same hour of something really positive as well. And so it's like you almost don't have enough time to process the good thing or the bad thing that you're feeling. And the question that you often get is, oh, um, how is it going? And before you can answer, oh, it seems to be going so well because I'm seeing your novel everywhere, you know, on, on social media or, or I read the article, the review, etc. Um, but the truth is that it's so much more complicated than that. You know, there's a sense of, of loss of, of you're sending this part of your soul out into the world. And that's a beautiful thing because people connect with it. And, and like, what, what a privilege to have that happen, but also it's super vulnerable. And if someone doesn't like it, it can't not feel personal to a certain extent, even though it's totally fine that they don't. Um, yeah, so just having to like to wrestle with all of those different things at the same time, um, I think is is difficult. Whether your book is successful or not successful, um, I think it's the same. If you're a best-selling author, there are always going to be reviews on you know whatever platform. People who don't like your book or and who don't think about you reading on the other side, um, who might not be as thoughtful in their commentary. Yeah, I think that's a really valid point. And it goes back to the larger themes that we've been talking about a lot in this conversation in that it is so critical to slow down and allow yourself that time to process what you're feeling just as much as what other people are feeling too. And I think what I've personally learned about writing and reading is that there really is this sort of give and take between what you're consuming, considering that there is a person who took the time to craft such a thoughtful story and give you a sense or a chance rather to step into a world and step out of it and process the creativity and commitment that went into building all of that. And I mean, that might be something that's only relevant to me because I sort of understand the process of that just from having spoken to other writers and storytellers throughout my career. But I think at least the shift in pace that I've experienced has reminded me that we have to be a little bit more conscious. Yes, that's that's really true and I I do feel like one of one of the um I don't know if I can even call it a silver lining but something that that I've noticed is because our lives are slower have been slower this summer and in the spring um I wonder if it would have been even more jarring um you know had had I not had being able to take time at home to process some of these feelings and moments, um, though maybe I would have had more distractions from them too. I don't know. It's hard to tell. 
Yeah, I think timing is everything. And on that note, it's actually a really nice segue into one of the last questions that I always like to ask to bring each of my conversations full circle. And so sort of using what we just spoke about as a runway for that, why do you think slowing down our relationship to content will ultimately help us live, work, and feel better? I I mean, I keep going back to what I said earlier, which was the piece of advice from my undergraduate writing teacher who was talking about the importance of daydreaming. And it's something that that I, I mean, it's crazy that I have to remind myself to daydream, but, but I do think it's, it's so important for me in order to recharge. I know some people recharge in the presence of others or by doing things, but for me, it's very much the stillness and the quiet and the daydreaming that allows me to, um, take care of myself, you know, away from a screen and away from the sound, the noise and, and um, everything else that's happening around me. And that allows me to then better take care of others. And, you know, whether it's um, in friendships or in my family, or even in being better equipped to write. Um, so I, I do think that it is so personal, but when I talk to my writer friends and, and my peers, um, there does seem to be a running thread in terms of, you know, making sure that we can make space for, for that um, and not think of it just as an indulgence, you know, but think of it as part of the creative process. That was Sanae Lemoyne, author of The Margot Affair. You can purchase The Margot Affair anywhere books are sold, though we recommend supporting local and independent bookstores if you can. And you can follow Sanae on social at Sanae Lemoyne. We'll be sharing highlights from this episode at Slow Stories Official on Instagram and at Slow Stories Pod on Twitter. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, and thank you so much for tuning in to Slow Stories.